As we begin a new sermon series this weekend, uh, I do pray that you will seriously consider uh, being a part of a small group, maybe in your neighborhood or, or wherever you work. Uh, Dean Lynn and I this week will uh, begin meeting in, a, in our small group. We've been a part of a group now for 40 years, ever since we've been married, and uh, we find it to be an amazing way to go down deeper deeper. In this case, we'll be going down deeper into the weekend topics, and I believe you will find the same. We are beginning a new series of lessons this week that will carry us all the way up to Thanksgiving. Why don't we pray, and then we'll get right to work. Gracious Lord, have mercy now upon us as we open your word. Help us to open our hearts. We ask that you'd forgive our speaker. You know his sins are so many. And even through this Old Testament book of Esther, would you consider helping us to see Jesus, just Jesus? Through Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, winter can cast a long gray shadow. Days are short, the nights are long, the sky seems shy and hidden behind the, the grayness. Warmth has packed her bag and escaped to the tropics, and yet here you are left to live in a, a day of limited sight. Try as you might to walk by faith. Uh, the task is not easy. A day of daylight would be nice, but that's not going to happen. It's, it's winter. It's winter. And winter brings danger, blizzards and ice storms. Life is lived on the edge. Caution is the theme. Come springtime, come springtime, you'll frolic in the meadows and you'll gladly plunge in the pond. But not now. It's now it's time to, to button up and to lock up, to stay home and to stay safe and to stay in. It's winter out there. Is it winter where you are? Do you know the... The solstice of sunless days. Do you know the harsh elements? Do you ever feel like you're trapped in this perpetual chill? Caught, you might go so far as to say, in a season of death. That's what winter is. Springtime brings life. Summer sways bushy leaves in the wind. Autumn, although it is preparing to lead us into hibernation, still gives forth a harvest of plenty. But winter... Winter is deathly still. Trees extend their skeletal limbs and fields are frosty and wild, wildlife has, has gone underground for the winter. Gone. I wonder if you can relate. I know a young mom who can. <clears throat> She's alone with three kids. Two in preschool, one handicapped. Her days are full and her husband, well, her husband is AWOL. Camp chaos was too much for him. It's too much for her too, but, but what can she do? So every day, every hour seems to bring some baby who needs to be changed or child who needs to be held or a meal that needs to be prepared, she feels stuck, stuck in a, stuck in a form, a form of winter, and she wonders if it's ever going to end. So does my friend Tom, 
Tom and I have much in common. We're both in decent health. We're both retirement age. We're both blessed with wonderful wives, and we both have marriages that will predate the Carter administration. There's one difference. Whereas my wife will ask me, what do you want for dinner? Tom's wife will ask him, who are you? He placed her in a memory care facility over a year ago. And so far, he is spending his retirement visiting a wife who knows not who he is. They had dreamed of traveling the country in an RV. Now he just makes daily visits to the facility. It's winter. It's winter. The winter that I'm describing is no respecter of latitudes. You don't have to live near one of the two poles to experience it. A divorce will do just fine. So will chemotherapy. Extended time in rehab, prison, debt, or depression. Well, if you know those, you know the chill of winter. These lessons that we're going to look at really emerged from a season of winter when I began writing these messages. Every person on the planet, it seemed, was living in the chill of COVID-19. A pandemic had us locked down. That man that I told you about, Tom, he visits his wife, but he has to talk to her through a window. That mom that I told you about, her salary is meager because her restaurant job is dis continued unemployment checks don't cover her bills some churches are closed many students are stuck at home this microscopic virus has paralyzed us and an ancient sin has threatened to undo us An officer's knee on the neck of a black man activated this this subterranean anger A volcano spewed into the streets of many major cities. Those of us who had hoped that racism was fading were convinced otherwise. Wouldn't you agree with me that the entire world seems wrapped in winter? Only one question is on everyone's mind, and that is, when is this all going to end? Are we ever going to return to normal? Are we going to find solutions, a a vaccine for the plague, equal rights for all people? We're all searching for for springtime. I'm not telling you anything when I say that winters come with life. Some global winters, some personal. But they're all powerful, aren't they? Try as we might to button our coats and Lean into the wind. The hardiest among us can can fall. The wind is strong and the nights are long. And the question is all too common. Will this winter ever pass? God has an answer for that question. And his answer has six letters. E-S-T-H-E-R. The book that bears her name was written to be read in wintertime, written for the emotionally weary, written for the person who feels outnumbered by foes or outmaneuvered by fate or outdone by fear. 
It's as if God, in his kind providence, heard the collective prayers of souls who are weathering winters. And to every person who is stuck in this, this Arctic February, he invites us into the book of Esther. And he says, follow me. I'd like you to see what I can do. And he escorts us right into a grand theater and invites us to take a seat on the front row. He nods at the symphony conductor and all at once the music begins and the curtain opens and we are eyewitnesses to a masterpiece, a masterpiece of divine drama. Let's begin. Let's begin by setting the context. The context. The context is 4th century B.C. Persia. The empire was to its day what Rome was to the 1st century. It dominated the then known world. It stretched out some 4,228 miles from modern-day Punjab to Khartoum, or to get the scope of it. Walk from Los Angeles to Atlanta and then turn around and walk back. Or take a map of the United States, double it, and set the two maps side by side. And you're beginning to get a feel for the scope of the Persian Empire. A small minority of residents within the population of Persia were the Jewish people. They lived in exile some three generations removed from their homeland. They, as a, as a people, were searching for springtime. It was a time of collective suffering. Their capital had been decimated by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And they had been scattered around the then-known empire, cut off from their temple, cut off from their people, and they were wrestling, they were facing the very twin and real temptations of despair and assimilation. They were surrounded by this fickle, all-powerful people. The Persians held all the cards and the Jews held none. Their fortunes could be seized in an instant. Their homes could be taken Consequently, they were tempted to blend in, not stand out, to give up their call to be God's covenant people. This story, the story of Esther, was originally written for them. In fact, the book of Esther to this day is a part of the Jewish catechism, required reading on the annual feast of Purim. Its purpose was to remind God's people not to abandon their call. That's the context. Look at the characters. The characters. Character number one is a king by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes, the king. <laughs> this guy. He had a thirst for wine. He had a disregard for women. He had convictions that changed with the weather. His Hebrew name was Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, which correctly spoken sounds like a, a good sneeze. For that reason, I'm going to go with his Persian name, Xerxes. Xerxes, besides any name that requires two X's, is a lot of fun to pronounce. The book of Esther portrays Xerxes as a wimp. He was an accomplished drinker, not much of a thinker. 
He was most comfortable holding a goblet and delegating all his decisions. His story relates no profound thoughts or statesmanlike decrees. My goodness, he couldn't even manage his marriage without consulting his advisors. Catch him in the right mood? <laughs> and he would agree to a holocaust. At least that was the experience of Haman the villain. Haman the villain. You'll find his name easy to remember. It sounds a lot like hangman which is appropriate because Haman was all about death. He was a wealthy and influential officer in the cabinet of Xerxes. His jet was private. His wardrobe was hand-tailored. He got a manicure every Monday and played golf with King Xerxes every Thursday. He had the ear of the king. He had the swagger of a pimp. And he had the compassion of Hitler. That's no overstatement. We see a lot of Adolf in Haman. Both demanded to be worshipped. Both were intolerant of subversion. And both set out to exterminate the entire Jewish race. Can't you almost hear Hitler saying what Haman said? Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it to the king's treasuries. These certain people dispersed that he's talking about were none other than the Hebrew nation the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the family tree of Jesus Christ. And they were scattered across the Persian Empire. To Haman, they were inconsequential flecks of dandruff on the robe of Xerxes. But to God, they were the race through whom he would redeem Mankind. Now, the road had been rocky for the prior century or so. A civil war divided the nation into the northern and southern kingdoms. One king outdid another, it seemed, in godless living. And to get their attention, God permitted invasions and deportations. And the result was that the Jews represented a minority of people in Persia. One of these Jews really got under Haman's skin. Mordecai. Mordecai was mortified at Haman's arrogance and prejudice, and he refused to bow in front of Mordecai. Others would bow, not him. Others were intimidated, not him. Others were swept up in the parties of Xerxes in Persia, but Mordecai, steely-eyed. Rock-jawed. Now, he waffled at first, but boy, he found his footing. And he became the hero to Haman's villain, the Eisenhower to the Nazi punk. 
The presence of Mordecai gives us an opportunity to be reminded of a wonderful truth. And that is in every crisis, God has his person. In every crisis, God has his person. And friends, when all seems lost, it's not. When all seems dark, it's not. When evil seems to own the day, it's God who has the final say. He has a Joseph for every famine. He has a David for every Goliath. He can even call a Rahab into service. When baby Moses needed a mama, God prompted an Egyptian prince to have compassion. Now, it may take a while for for him to find his courage or for, for her to appear in the story, but God always, be assured, God always has his person. In this case, he had a man named Mordecai, and he had this drop-dead beauty, Esther the queen, the star of the story. Oh, she must have been gorgeous. (laughs) She must have been a head-turner. The Scripture introduces her with this phrase, she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. King Xerxes, when he saw her, she pleased him and won his favor. As she enters the story with, 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 with beauty, but she stays in the story because of her conviction. She gained access to the king because of her appearance, but she's really in Scripture because of her conviction. When called into duty by Mordecai to speak up on behalf of the Jewish people, Esther spoke words. You've heard these, but she spoke these words worthy of a Hollywood script. She said, I will go to the king, and even though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Are you beginning to sense the elements of the drama in this wonderful book? Sex, violence, brutality, racism, a clueless brood of a king, a devious Heartless, bloodthirsty, Haman, a nation of Jews under the threat of a holocaust. Mordecai, who refused to bow. Esther, who was willing to, go, to die. And God, God. Now, there's a question worthy of the asking. So shall we? Let's look at the question. Where is God in this story? You see, the book of Esther is famous for being the only book in the Bible where the name of God never appears. At no point do you read, and God said, or or God chose, or or God decreed, there is no mention of a temple, no mention of of the Torah, no mention of the name Yahweh or Elohim. There's no mention of of Jerusalem. The the, the book contains no no apocalyptic vision as Daniel had, no no reading of the law as Ezra had. While prayer is certainly implied, it is not explicitly described. So why? Why? Why the seeming silence of God? If you're in the midst of a winter, you can answer that question. God seems hidden to you, doesn't he? Removed 
distant, absent from your script. Others seem to hear from God. They talk about what God said to them. They talk about what they heard from God. They sense God's direction, God's moving, God's will, God's purpose. But you, winter time is quiet. You're searching for springtime, searching for the opportunity to hear God's voice again, but it's been a long time. You're puzzled. Others seem to have a, a backstage pass to his performance. You can't find his name on the playbill. Consequently, you wonder, you really, you really wonder, is God here? And does God care? You wonder, is faith nothing more than a fool's errand? I mean, here you are with your version of a of a Haman breathing down your neck or your version of a, of a, of a half-witted Xerxes running your world. You've got a crisis on the horizon and, and you can't find God in your story. I wonder if you might be open to the promise of quiet providence. Providence, providence is this is this $2 term that, that theologians use to describe the presence of God as the caretaker of the cosmos, his continual control over the universe. He not only spoke the universe into being, but he governs right now the details of the universe by his authority. The scripture says he is sustaining all things by his powerful Word. The, 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 the throne room is not vacant. God is here. Yes, he is regal. Yes, he is royal. But this is important. He is right here. He is not preoccupied with the plight of Pluto to the expense of your problems and pain. And he's been known to intervene. And sometimes he does this dramatically. Sometimes the Red Sea opens. Sometimes the, the axe head floats. There was a virgin who was pregnant. There was a tomb that was vacated. Yet, my friend, for every divine shout, there are a million whispers. The book of Esther is the story of a whispering God. He need not be loud to be strong. This priceless book reminds us that our good God is the most eloquent in his seeming silence and he is most active when he appears most distant. Do you need this reminder? Do you know the challenge of faith in a faithless world? Mordecai and Esther did. Are you longing for courage? Mordecai and Esther found some. Do you wonder if God sees you? As you shiver in the chill of your personal challenges, you can find your answer in the book of Esther. God's deliverance was so dramatic that to this day, Jews still celebrate the day their sorrow turned into joy and their mourning somersaulted into a holiday for parties and fun and laughter. Do you wonder if God will keep his promise to his people? Well, just read how the evil scheme that Haman had worked out should boomerang back on his own head and his own, he and his sons were hanged on the gallows. 
Our God is a God of grand reversals. The theme of the book of Esther, indeed the theme of the Bible, is that all injustices of the world will be turned on their head. The very one who seeks to destroy will be destroyed. The devil, our Haman, will be impaled on a spike of his own making. Go ahead, let him strut about, let him prance, let him dance. He knows his days are numbered. The gavel has slammed and he has been declared guilty. His gallows have been constructed and we're only moments from witnessing the turning of the tables. God may seem silent, my friend, but he is not. The fact that he does not put his name on the marquee doesn't mean that he's not the author of the script. He's the king of quiet providence, and he invites you and he invites me to partner in his work. That hearty amen that you just heard was from a precious Oak Hills member by the name of Linda Reimer. Her life has been ravaged by a hurricane Katrina of troubles. She was raised in a loveless home in western Pennsylvania. Her mother would send her out each morning with a raw potato, a pack of matches, and the daily reminder, just be back by dark. She and her sister Nancy would play unattended all day. They would make a fire to cook their potatoes for lunch, swim in the creek, and finally come back. One evening they came back, and supper consisted of Linda's pet bunny, fried and flopped down on the kitchen table. She has no memory of her father ever calling her name much less showing her any affection. Even so, she was able to make it through high school, make it to college, where she met and married a man who wanted to be a missionary in Mexico. They moved into a remote area where conditions were basic and bleak. Life as a missionary was survivable, but life with her husband was not. He was abusive, so abusive that Linda and her four children finally escaped. They boarded, boarded a bus in Mexico with one suitcase and no money, and made it as far as Arlington, Texas, where Linda had a phone number from a friend from college. This friend helped her find a minimum wage job, and for three months, she and her children slept on the floor. Her children shared flea market mattresses. To save money, she worked through lunch each day while she was working her superiors noticed that she was working while others were eating and she was being more productive. She began to receive promotions little by little. She and her family stepped out of extreme poverty. She eventually was given an opportunity to move to Houston. That's where she came in touch with Junior Achievement, an organization that exists to break the cycle of poverty. Well, she was acquainted with this world. And she took a position with them and she flourished, eventually becoming the CEO of Asia Pacific and the Americas. She was responsible for 55 countries on five continents. Junior Achievement estimates that she impacted 32 million lives. But then came another challenge, ALS. The disease is taking its toll on her body. She still makes it to worship. She still brings a word of encouragement, but it's yet another season of winter, yet she does not give up. She's always quick with a smile and with a word of hope. And finally, I had to ask her, how do you do it? How do you face these challenges without bitterness? She said this, when you are on your own, there's only one way to look, and that is up. 
People have failed me, but God never has. Sounds like she's discovered the resolve of Esther. Could you use some? Friend, everybody faces their share of winters. Maybe you're in the middle of one. If so, then the story of Esther is for you. I urge you not to miss a single message this fall. Read the book, read the story, and be reminded winters don't last forever. Trees will soon bud again. Snow will soon soon melt. And springtime is only a turn of the calendar away. And for all we know, God has his hand on the calendar and is about to flip the page. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful book. May we, as we read it and consider it, sense your Holy Spirit as our teacher and guide. Through Christ we pray. Amen.